you happen to notice that I kind of walked down around a little bit while we were singing that song, when I walked down with the choir, you may have been thinking, oh, what's going on here? Uh, I just have a sore throat. I just need to get a throat lozenge, and I left it there on the chair. But the, there are times where we, we get surprised by what happens in worship. A few times where you think, well, that was unexpected. I didn't see that coming. And, you know, we kind of try to do that periodically just to keep us all a little bit uh, not getting too complacent about worship. But we often get surprised by things. We, it's a part of our life, and typically a lot of the surprises are good. Some are not. But it's a part of our lives. What we tend to say is that nothing surprises God. I have said that. I know other people have said that. Nothing surprises God. Or does it? I'm coming to see that maybe there are some things that happen that do surprise God. And in fact, one of those is in this passage we just read a few moments ago. Jesus is having a conversation with a Roman soldier about the soldier's servant. And when the conversation is done, Matthew says, Jesus was amazed. You and I are amazed at things. There are places in Scripture, a number of places in Scripture, that talk about people being amazed at Jesus, and we get that. But to think that Jesus is amazed at a person, it takes us back a little bit, because we don't expect that. I don't know what it looked like for Jesus to be amazed in that moment. Did he just step back and say, wow, that's interesting, sort of subtle? Or was he a little more excited? I personally think he was more excited. I think this is a moment, it's fairly early in his ministry, that he has this conversation, and out of that conversation, he says, wow, this guy gets it. This guy understands what I'm trying to say. I'm astounded by that. I'm amazed by that. He's surprised. I suspect it's one of those moments in life where we where we find those joyous surprises, things that, that are exciting to us, but we didn't expect. Someone was saying to me earlier this week that their idea of that kind of amazement is, is one of those moments when you, it's December, it's starting to get cold, and you, or you know, it's October, September is starting to get cold, it's hard to say. Uh, but it's, it's that first time when you can't wear a jacket anymore, and you need a winter coat. And so you go in the basement or that closet or the attic or wherever it is you store your winter stuff. And you pull out that winter coat that you haven't worn for a number of months. And you shake it out and you brush it off. And, and you, you, you put it on the first time. And as you're walking out the door, you put your hands in your pocket and you feel something. Huh, I wonder what that is. And you pull it out and it's a wad of $20 bills. Now, I don't know who puts $20 bills in their winter coat and forgets about it. But it does happen. That, you would be amazed to find a wad of $20 bills in your coat pocket, but it's the kind of amazement that thrills you. It's exciting. It's invigorating. Wow, I never expected that, but this is awesome. I think that's the amazement of Jesus. I think Jesus is excited. I think he might be a little bit giddy. I can't believe it. Look what's happened. And what is it that triggers that amazement in Jesus? It's the man's faith. 
Jesus is so astounded by this Roman soldier's faith that he says to the crowd, turns to the crowd behind him and says, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Now, you know, Jesus tends to like to use hyperbole sometimes. When he tells parables, he often uses hyperbole to make his point. There was a guy who owed a billion dollars to his master. Who's going to loan somebody, a servant, a billion dollars, right? But he makes, it makes the point. And I don't know if Jesus is using hyperbole here to get the attention of the people, but I suspect it does. Whatever the case, he is astounded at this man's faith. There is something about the faith of this man that he did not expect. It's the faith of a Roman soldier, a Gentile, one of the oppressors of Israel. And he gets faith in a way that all the other people around Jesus miss. What, kind of, what is it about his faith that he gets? I've come to see that if you want to understand the stories of Scripture, it's often helpful to see them in the context of the stories that come before them. I think this is one of those cases. I think these two stories, the story of the leper and the story of the Roman centurion, I think they're connected. So you have in the story of the leper, a leper who comes to Jesus. First of all, lepers are not supposed to be around people. And if they are, they're supposed to be unclean. They're not supposed to talk to people, much less touch anyone or get near anyone. And here a leper comes and he says to Jesus, would you heal me? If you're willing, you could heal me. You see what his issue is. I think there's something in his mind that says, I think you can do it. I've watched you do it. My question is, are you willing to do it? This is a man who's been told his entire life he is insignificant. He's not only insignificant to the people, he's insignificant to God. He's cursed by God. Why else would he have this kind of disease? God doesn't want to have anything to do with him. He's not allowed in the temple. He's not allowed to be a part of their worship. He's not allowed to be in in the marketplace. He's not allowed to be anywhere people are. He is a non-entity. He is completely without value and worth. And he comes to Jesus and says, Do I have any value and worth to you? Would you be willing to heal a person like me? Jesus says, of course. Of course I would be glad to heal you. I suspect we all wrestle from time to time, maybe more than we like to admit, to truly accept the fact that we are valuable to God. It is probably one of the the most uh, painful parts of the entrance of sin and rebellion into the world in our relationship with God is that we have come to believe or to to doubt the fact that God truly is for us. That we are important to God, significant to God, that He would show compassion to us because what we tend to hear, the messages in our minds, the messages that the evil one tells us is, you're not worth it. 
You've done that way too many times. You're too far gone. You've offended God too much. You've broken too many rules. Nobody will ever accept you, much less God. Why would he ever help you? And we live in that kind of despair. But Jesus says to a, to a leper, of course I will heal you. You're important to me. On the heels of that story, we find the story of the Roman centurion who comes not for himself but for his servant. And he comes to Jesus and says, I have a servant who's paralyzed. He's in great pain. That's all he says. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. I think Jesus is, is anticipating that the, the same problem, that the centurion has the same problem as the leper does. Because after all, what is a servant? A servant in that culture is virtually non-existent as well. Many people would look at their servants and consider them tools. They're just objects that you use to get what you want. But Jesus says, I will come. And you almost get the sense that the, the centurion says, well, I'm not worried about you being willing to come. In fact, I'm not even worried about your ability to come. I'm just coming to present the need to you so you can do something about it. I think the centurion understands the nature of who Jesus is and why Jesus comes, and that is to set people free. He comes to release us from the captivity of the evil one and all the effects of evil in this world. All the, all the diseases, all of the, the physical, mental, emotional struggles that we wrestle with, the root of all of those things go back to the evil one whose intent for us is destruction. He wants to destroy us. He wants to do everything evil and harmful to us. And Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil. John tells us that. And he says, I am able and I am willing. And something in the Roman centurion gets that. Something about what he has seen of Jesus, something about what he has witnessed in Jesus, clicks in his mind, and he sees Jesus in a way that lots and lots of other people are having a hard time seeing him. That Jesus has power over evil, and that Jesus' desire, his yearning, his willingness, his purpose, his wholeness, that's the nature of the kingdom. When we get to the end of Revelation and John describes the scene, of the eternal scene of heaven, what we find there is the healing of the nations. What we find is, is wholeness and completeness and restoration and transformation completely and fully. And when Jesus ushers in the kingdom, that's what it will be. It will be the ultimate image and experience of shalom. Everything coming together exactly as God always intended it from the beginning. And in the meantime, Jesus is at work helping us to understand that and to experience that in the ways that we can. When you think about the, the miracles in Scripture, it's important to remember that these are temporary things because every person that Jesus heals eventually dies. What he does for them is temporary. 
We also need to understand when you read the miracles that they are glimpses of, of the, the finality of the kingdom. We get a glimpse in every one of these miracles of the purpose of God to restore and to heal. And he does that in a way that is temporary now, that eternal then. But we get glimpses of that. But the other thing we have to keep in mind with every one of these miracle stories is that we don't have to wait till then to begin to experience the presence of God and the fullness of God and the wholeness and the cleansing of God. We can actually experience that now, not just physically, but in a greater way spiritually. Because everything about the kingdom is about healing and wholeness. That's his purpose for us. And Jesus is bringing the eternal into the temporal. And he invites us to experience that too. We don't have to convince him to do that. We don't have to worry about whether he has the power to do that. He comes and says, I am able and I am willing. And faith believes that Jesus is able and willing and he's willing and he's able. And it's an eternal perspective. That's partly why Jesus turns to the crowd and says, if you think that's surprising, let me tell you something that's going to really shock you. People like this Roman centurion, people that you think are not worthy to be a part of the kingdom, people that you think should be outcasts, many of them are going to eat at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people you adore, the people who represent God on earth, who God says, those are my people, that's who I identify myself with. Those glorious people, those Gentiles, they're going to eat with them. And the sad thing is, many of you, because you feel entitled, instead of have faith, are going to be cast out from that same banquet. That's a sobering thing to think about. So the question for us is, how, what does that kind of faith look like? What does it look like to have the kind of faith that amazes Jesus? What does it look like to, be, to believe in the willingness of Jesus to do more than we could dream or imagine? I think it's believing not just with our minds, but with our lives in the compassionate heart of Jesus for all people. I think there's a connection between compassion and faith. Now, not everybody who exhibits compassion has faith in Jesus. But Scripture seems to tell us that everyone who has faith in Jesus has compassion. Paul says that there are many elements to the fruit of the Spirit, but two of them are gentleness and kindness. Compassion. It's always intrigued me when Jesus goes into the temple on the Sabbath and people come to him to be healed. And the religious leaders are standing over there going, what are you going to do? And Jesus heals these people. And instead of being excited that one of their brothers or sisters has been set free, they're angry. And they say to Jesus, look, 
You got sick. If you want to heal people, you got six days you can heal people. Don't be coming in here and doing that on the Sabbath. I mean, how? It's hard to imagine anyone having less compassion than that. It's no wonder they have no faith in Jesus. They have no compassion in which the faith can get rooted. And they have no faith in which they can exhibit compassion. But there is the other part of not just believing in the willingness and that compassion that we see. But there is believing in the authority of Jesus. That he is greater than evil. He is greater than the, than the evil one. He is the conqueror. He is the king. He's the Lord of lords. And I think at the root of believing that, maybe the visible sign that we truly believe that is true, is that we continually come humbly to God and acknowledge our need. We continue to come humbly to Him and say, you alone are the answer to whatever struggle I'm dealing with and to my life. You'll notice that the leper comes to Jesus and he kneels before him. There's really very little, there's little more more of a surrendering kind of posture than kneeling in front of someone. You're basically just saying, I'm here, do whatever you want with me. It is a position of vulnerability and weakness. And he comes in that position. I mean, in his case, what more does he have? What does he have to lose, right? He comes. You sort of expect that. The Roman centurion comes and Matthew said he pleads with Jesus. Which I find interesting because he's a person of power. He even says, I have authority. Say, go, they go. I come, they come. But he doesn't, he could come to Jesus and say, look, We're in control here. You're a Jew. You do what we tell you to do. And I'm going to force you to go home and take care of my servant. But he doesn't. He comes in humility. He comes and says, I believe you are the one who can do something about this. I need you. We never outgrow our need for Jesus. I think it's one of the traps that the evil one puts us into where we think that to be holy is to be so far advanced in our faith with Jesus that we we really can do pretty well on our own. The reality is the most holy people that I have ever met are people who live every day saying, without Jesus, I am nothing. I rely on Jesus every moment. And the idea of holiness is that we continue to recognize our need for Jesus and that grows and grows and grows. And our surrender to Jesus continues to expand as well. We never outgrow that. I find it fascinating how Jesus actually heals both of these people. Isn't it interesting that Jesus reaches out and touches 
the leper. Wow. That communicates almost as much as more than words. This man that no one wants around, much less do they want to touch. Jesus touches him. There is something that is communicated through the human touch. If you've ever had people gather around you, lay hands on you and pray for you, there is, there is an electricity in that. I suspect that this, this uh, leper, that this moment was maybe the most electrifying moment of his life. This man touched him. We know the power of touch. A hug, an arm around us, even just a touch on the arm or the shoulder. It communicates so much. I, I remember, I can remember many moments when people in compassion and grace have, have touched me and they walk away. I can still feel that touch. It just lingers there. It's powerful. But you'll notice that with the servant, not only does Jesus not touch the servant, he never even sees him. He is never even in the same room with him, never in the same house with him, never in the same place with him. He does not lay, even lay eyes on the man and he heals him. And as I began to ponder that, I think there is something in that comparison that is important for us and faith. Because we tend to want our faith to be rooted in seeing Jesus, feeling Jesus being touched by Jesus, experiencing Jesus. We, we think faith is connected to the visible evidence of Jesus at work. And we, we love those times, and God gives us those times. And the leper, I think, experiences that. And it's good, and Jesus, Jesus says this is good, and he heals him and does great things for him, and I think probably changes his life. But what amazes Jesus... Is the centurion saying to him, you don't have to see for me to believe. You don't have, I don't have to feel you or experience you or see you in that same way for me to believe. I just believe. No wonder Jesus is amazed. Jesus says to his disciples after his resurrection, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And I wonder if, he isn't, if there isn't a connection here. That a part of our growing faith is coming to the place where we don't have to see Jesus to believe. We don't have to get the prayer answered that we are yearning for to continue to believe. It's awesome when we get those things and they're gifts of God. But can we believe even when we don't see? Even when we don't experience? And even when we don't have the feeling that we're looking for? The emotion that we're looking for? Can we still Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is able and willing. And can we believe that Jesus is at work doing more than we could dream or imagine even if we can't put our finger on it? 
even if we can't see it, do we still believe? I think that is the kind of faith that amazes Jesus. And it's a journey for us. We're all over the map with this. Maybe some of you are here saying, yeah, you know what? I really do. That, that's me. I, I, I really most of the time have that kind of faith. Others of you may be at the point where you say, man, that's a huge struggle for me. I really wrestle with that. I get that. I wrestle with it too. But the thing about having that kind of faith is that it's just enlarging our trust. It's opening our hearts and allowing us to experience more and more of the transforming power of Jesus through that kind of faith. It may not be what we ask for, but it's always good. It's bigger. It's greater. And God knows our struggle along the journey. And so he gives us signs. He gives us witness. And one of those signs is this table. Because when we come to this table, we come believing that Jesus is who he says he is. This table declares to us that Jesus has conquered evil and that Jesus' desire is to transform every single one of us. That all of us would experience the wholeness and the fullness of life with him. And he invites us to that. This table is an invitation to come at whatever level of faith we may be and experience His grace to have more faith in who He is and what He desires to do. I'd like for us, in in, in response, to pray together the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin. To corporately declare that this is the desire of our hearts to have faith. Most gracious Heavenly Father, you have proven to us that you are good. You create and rule over all that is. Nevertheless, so often we allow ourselves to be overwhelmed with anxiety and fear about possessions we crave the needs of everyday life, the present and the future. We confess that our worry is rooted in a skewed view of who you are. Forgive us for doubting your care and for doubting the truth about who you are. Fill us with faith to seek you and to trust that you are more than enough. Through Christ, amen. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ and for the gift of faith. We pray today, Father, that your blessing will rest upon the bread and the cup, that as we eat and drink, we may know the power, the presence, the love, the grace of Jesus Christ in us and to us. Open our eyes more and more to who you are, Give us faith to believe 
We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.